For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, click Granger.com, or just stop by. Granger For the ones who get it done. Racing cars on the limit is, is dangerous, exciting. One has the opportunity of beating other people by competing against them and doing it with honesty and doing it with enjoyment. Running as close to the limit as possible is very exhilarating. Sir Sterling Moss, the quintessential racing driver, undoubtedly the greatest never to win the Formula One World Championship. I'm Tom Clarkson and welcome to a very special episode of Beyond the Grid. On the 12th of April 2020, after a long illness, Sir Sterling Moss passed away. To say the world of motor racing lost a giant would be an understatement. In his long and decorated career, Sterling raced and won in everything. In hill climbs, sports car races, touring cars and, of course, Formula One. He was revered by fans and his peers. He was quite simply one of the greatest drivers of his or any other era whose name became synonymous with speed. He was Mr. Motor Racing. In 1955, he became the first Briton to win his home Grand Prix. It was one of 16 fabulous Formula One victories. Of course, he famously never won the world title his talent so obviously deserved. But the way he lost the title in 1958, after speaking up for his rival and eventual champion Mike Hawthorne, and saving him from a penalty, perhaps says more about the man than silverware ever could. No wonder the likes of Sir Jackie Stewart, Lewis Hamilton and Damon Hill called him an icon, an inspiration and an impeccable sportsman. In the final few years of his life, Sterling stopped doing public appearances and interviews because of his health. But he did sit down for a chat with a close family friend who grew up with Sterling, his wife Susie and their son Elliot for what is believed to be his final in-depth interview. I'm Mia Forbes-Perry, and I've known Sterling Moss since I was born. He is my mum's best friend. I still have trouble talking about him in the past tense. <laughs> he was my mum's best friend. Her first job was working for him as his PA, and then she managed his motor racing team, and they became friends, and they would talk every week, at least. And so I grew up around Sterling and Susie and Elliot, and so they feel like part of my extended family. I was talking to my mum about him a while ago and I said to my mum that I didn't understand why Sterling didn't play games with us anymore in the evening because at some point sometimes he would go to bed when we played games. She laughed and she said he did enjoy it. Don't you remember? He used to play and then you and Elliot got better at games and started winning and he didn't like to play with you anymore. When you listen to the interview, 
you'll get a, a, a good feeling for the man that he was. The interview took place at Sterling and Susie's home in London. It was in October 2016, just a couple of months before he got sick. It was near to the last interview he did, and I think it was probably the last really long interview. What I miss most about Sterling is just him being there. He was one of those people I thought totally illogically would be there forever. Mia has shared this intimate and extremely poignant interview with Beyond the Grid. This is Sir Sterling Moss, in his own words, looking back at a life lived at full speed. Sterling Crawford Moss was born in 1929 to Eileen and Alfred, both of whom took part in motor races. Their love of cars and competition clearly rubbed off on young Sterling, who eventually convinced his father to let him race. My father raced, and he raced in Indianapolis as well, and in Brooklyn and stuff. But, but I, I was brought up, really started, I started when I was 16, in 500cc cars, so this small cars, and did hill climbs. And... Uh, so that, that was the sort of life it was. And what a life. Young Sterling won silverware in his very first event, a sprint race in 1947. In the years ahead, he raced all over Europe, before making his Formula One World Championship debut in Switzerland in 1951. During his career, he raced in motorsport's most dangerous era, on the fearsome Grand Prix tracks of the 50s and 60s. They were bumpy and unforgiving, often lined with trees, with no barriers to stop the cars leaving the track. On several occasions, Sterling scored Formula One podiums in races which claimed the lives of fellow drivers. I knew how dangerous it was. I know how difficult circuits are. See, I mean, I did hundreds of races. And uh, there's always a danger at your shoulder. In my era, we were losing three or four drivers every year. Those people were friends of yours? No, I won't say all the time, but yes, nearly all of them. Anybody who did Formula One you know, would, would, and sports cars and so on have, have a, a bond, really, a fairly close bond. So what was it like just emotionally to lose those friends? Pretty bad. Pretty bad. I, I, I mean... I was racing because I love I love racing and so on, and I, and I think I was pretty good at it. So I felt that I had a, a safety, a bit of a safety net. Yeah, yeah. Saying if it had been me, I'm sure that I wouldn't have wouldn't have driven that way. In other words, I'd have got a little bit wider into a corner here or a bit closer here, and so and so. I, so I just made excuses that 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 um, they weren't genuine. But they convinced me, I was able to convince myself that um, if I had found myself in the position of the driver who just got killed, I'm sure I would have, have been another foot out here or there. In other words, I, I, could, I had confidence in that, that my ability would help me through the problem I'm facing. Okay. If it was you rather than me doing what happened to this particular corner, that, that you would have made the mistake, I wouldn't. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's, it's just making excuses, really. Yeah. But if you're so close to it, 
You don't see it that way. That explains sort of, I guess, how you deal with your fear of death. I don't, I don't know, are you afraid of death? Yes, terribly afraid of death because I love life. And so that means I'm afraid of death. Yeah. But there's nothing one can do about it. I suppose it's, a, it's good news. It'd be awful, awful if you knew. If you knew that in just a couple of weeks you're going to die, it'd be terrible. Was there an element when people died, with obviously with kindness, but was there an element of this is what we signed up for and we knew the risks? Yes. Yeah, certainly was. I mean, a very selfish sport. Why do you think it's a selfish sport? It's something you can't really share. Mm. It's all for you. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and not the others, they can't share it. Do you think that to achieve what you achieved, you, you almost had to be selfish yes. in life? Oh, certainly. Can I you mean, say you've got to be number one, and I want to go first. <laughs> and you, and that's the way it is. If you don't like it, don't play this game. I, I must say, I have damaged myself a bit. I've broken my back and my legs and my arms and, you know, yeah, those, those are part and parcel of the business, I mean. Why didn't the injury put you off? Why didn't the danger put you off? Because of the, the chance of success is greater than the, 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 than the downside. Mm-hmm. I, uh, I know my limitations and, I, and I'm prepared to drive right up to the edge of it. Mm-hmm. But when it gets beyond that, then then I back off. Now, thank God, motor racing is pretty safe. But then it was not safe. It was very, very, very dangerous. But then I got my pleasure from challenging you to do what I've just done and try and do it better. Mm-hmm. And I and I would invariably think, well, that wasn't bad. You did a pretty good job there. When you go out and you, you go and you lap certain circuits and so on, some of them are far more dangerous than others. To be successful, you've got to be a bit ruthless. If you're coming into a corner with another driver, you've got to have conditioned him so that he will give, give way before you will, by being fast, by enjoying competition mm-hmm. by um, being selfish I suppose it is very, very selfish really it's interesting that Sterling talks so much about the importance of selfishness because perhaps his greatest victory couldn't have been achieved on his own in the spring of 1955 he made his fifth attempt to win the Millimiglia a 1,000-mile road race for sports cars, racing from the northern Italian city of Brescia to Rome and back. To have a chance of victory, Sterling would need to master every braking point, clip every apex, ride every bump, and keep it flat out over blind crests. He used to say the race was the only one he was truly scared of, because as he put it, he didn't know where the road went. He wouldn't be able to learn every corner by heart like he could a Grand Prix circuit. So he'd have to take a different approach. Before the race starts, uh, you prepare yourselves. Do one lap of the millimetre at least two days. And I'm talking now, normally. Because it's a thousand miles, you know. So if I, if I go into a corner and made a, and 
thought that thought it was faster than it was, then that would be very frightening. The wreckage we could do because the roads are open all the time, and uh, so therefore, in between the main races that we were doing each week as racing, we would go to Italy and then we'd go and do another lap, and then you probably get might get two laps in 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 the in between one big race, Formula One if you like, and another one. Alongside Moss in the cockpit for those practice runs on the 1,000-mile course was his co-driver, the motorsport journalist Dennis Jenkinson. Moss called him Jenks. Together they made meticulous notes on every detail of the circuit, just like the pace notes used today in the World Rally Championship. But in 1955, things were a little different. We had a thing which we called the toilet roll because it winded on. And it wasn't an actual toilet roll. Or well, not, not exactly a, 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 literally a, a loo roll, but it was a thing uh, which is about that big, okay. uh, that, that thick. And in, in there were all these notes that we'd made in practice. He did, they weren't just words, he'd draw pictures and so on on the roller map. I think the, the toilet roll, which was uh, Jenks wrote it by hand, obviously, I think I'm right in saying it's 21 metres long, something like that. So, so to if you have this thing with 21 metres long and, and you obey its every, every, every instruction, then hopefully you'll be faster and not go over the road. I had to have complete uh, understanding and belief and faith in, in Jenks. In the, his interpretation of, what, of this thing called the toilet roll uh, was essential, and we did many, many laps to get it so that it was perfected. The toilet roll might have been primitive, but their car was anything but... Moss and Jenkinson would be using a Mercedes 300 SLR based on the W196 Grand Prix car that Moss raced in Formula One. Silver, sleek and fast, it could reach speeds of up to 180 miles per hour. Rather than racing wheel to wheel, the 600 plus cars in the race were set off one at a time, trying to set the fastest time over the course. The first car went at nine o'clock at night and that was things like little Fiat 500s and so on. My number was 722, which means that I went at 7.22 in the morning. Mm-hmm. I left, I went down the ramp. Some cars were even faster than ours. I mean, ours were fast, 180, but they had cars that were even faster than that. The big, bigger Ferraris. And he was up against some of the day's greatest Formula One and sports car drivers. But Moss's biggest challenge would come from his friend and mentor, Mercedes teammate, the legendary Juan Manuel Fangio who'd already won two of his five Formula One World Championships. Fangio had chosen to drive alone, also in a super-fast Mercedes 300 SLR. Moss hoped having Jenks with him would give him the advantage he'd need to win. Jenks, who was sitting beside me, he was reading from this roller map in his, in his lap. As we're going along, Jenks is giving me signals. He could say, if I'm coming up to a, a brow of a hill, he could say, right, flat out, or slow down, or slow down more. I mean, it's essential that the information that Jenks had on the toilet roll thing, it's essential that he could read that, not lose his place, and and it, all the big, big problem he had, of course, was because, because of the speeds we were doing and the cornering force, he was be, being sick because of the tremendous... Tremendous problem, and in fact, he lost his glasses. And thank God, had brought a spare pair. <laughs> but I mean, you know, these are these are ordinary things that happen. 
Yeah. And uh, you can't, you, you don't know they're going to happen, so you've got to be as well prepared as you can. Jenks was a very weird man. He was three times world champion in sidecar. Okay. Uh, yeah, as a passenger. And therefore, he had, he's extraordinary, he has no, no, no fear. Mm -hmm. I mean, he had complete confidence in what I was doing. I had complete confidence in what he was telling me. Uh, otherwise, it just wouldn't have worked, and we, you know, you'd go, get killed. To so be going along at that speed, uh, you c couldn't have any fear. I mean, I, 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 I wasn't frightened because I was driving, but uh, and therefore, this I made a mistake. Uh, you know, everything was okay. But a thousand miles at the speeds, I mean, we were doing speeds up to 180 miles an hour, and. Uh, you know, that's fairly sobering. On that day, on those winding Italian roads that so frightened him, Moss was imperious. He averaged 99 miles per hour over the 1,000-mile course and crossed the line in 10 hours, 7 minutes and 47 seconds. Then he and Jenks had to wait to see if anyone could beat that time. How was it waiting? How did it feel, waiting to well, know? Awful, awful. <laughs> Well, you see, because certainly we wouldn't, we wouldn't know where they were, mm -hmm. because although, although we knew at the time they started, we wouldn't know where the hell they were. Moss had set a pace that no one else could match, and set a record which stands to this day. Moss and Jenkinson celebrated their historic victory at the finish line, their smiles shining out against their faces that had been blackened by dirt from the race. They'd finished 32 minutes ahead of the next fastest driver, the great Juan Manuel Fangio. Moss said later that Dennis Jenkinson's meticulous pace notes and precise hand signals had gained them that extra half hour. Their teamwork was the difference between winning and finishing second. Why is winning so important? Because it's a challenge, and if you have a challenge, the person who's winner is obviously number one. Because the whole idea of competition is to have the, the pleasure of being faster than the other people. <laughs> I mean, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's, 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 it's just, just gives you a great feeling of success, I suppose. The Millie Miglia victory has been described as the most iconic single day's drive in motor racing history, and it cemented Moss's reputation. At that point, it seemed only a matter of time that he'd become Formula One world champion. Though famously, that never happened. Of all the near misses, he'd never come closer than he did in 1958. His rival that year was fellow Briton Mike Hawthorne, a bow-tie-wearing bon viveur. At the Portuguese Grand Prix late in the season, Hawthorne faced a penalty for how he'd got back on track after a spin. But in front of the stewards, Moss stood up for Hawthorne, saying he'd done nothing wrong. And Mike was able to keep his points for the race. In a season that went down to the final race, Hawthorne took the World Championship by a single point. Would you do that again? Yes. Why? Because I think it's right. Yes, I, I, I must say I, I would be proud to have, really, to give up certain things. And I think that if those certain things happen to include your upbringing in the way you are, your attitude and your those sort of things, it, um, then it matters. Mm -hmm. Is there something about 
knowing that you've won fairly and squarely? Yes. I think that if, if I would win a race because some, somebody else's misfortune, that that is uh, unfortunate. Mm-hmm. And I, 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 you know, I, I think that I think one has, you've got your own principles, and you know, you know where you're right and where you're wrong. And those principles you have are to live more with. important than winning. Yes, because you have to live with them. Yeah, your understanding, your interpretation of life, what is right and what is wrong. Sterling finished runner-up in the World Championship on three other occasions, 1955, 56 and 57. On each occasion, he was beaten by Juan Manuel Fangio, the man he partnered at Mercedes for much of his career under the leadership of team manager Alfred Neubauer. Fangio was the greatest Formula One driver, certainly. I competed him in sports cars, but in, in Formula One he was certainly the finest. And... Uh, he would, he would allow me to follow him really closely. We were nicknamed the train. I mean, we were literally going around circuits like Spa and Monaco and all that. So the, and and he'd, he would let me sort of sit there. And um, I remember Neuber coming up and sort of saying, well, what ha- you know, what's going to happen if, if Fangio crashes? And I just said, well, Fangio doesn't crash. He's the best. And so it worked out all right. I mean, Fangio was a gentleman. He was a, a fantastic driver, and um, I'm sure I'm sure he had a piece of my girlfriend at the moment, actually. <laughs> <laughs> Healthy competition. Yes, exactly. <laughs> Mercedes. I mean, they're the best team in the world. Okay. Really, to race for. They had the best car. A bit like now, really. They had mm-hmm. the best car and, and very, very good team, and uh, you know. And Neubauer is such a, uh, a character. Mm-hmm. And, um, but they looked after, the, the, I mean, if, if you won it, you think they'd take 10% of the money and give to the mechanics and the driver would get the other 90%. That's brilliant. You know, it's just, uh, I mean, they pay, paid well. There's no, no downside at all in, in Mercedes, not at all. Mm-hmm. Oh, you know, always think that I'm at the wrong time. <laughs> you know, I mean, now I mean, Lewis gets what, 20, uh, 50, 50 million a year, something like that. Well, I missed out on that one. I can't, I, I'm not jealous particularly because I know it's not there. But uh, you know, after Mercedes pulled out of motorsport in 1955, Moss raced in Formula One for the Maserati and Vanwall factory teams before campaigning a variety of British cars, such as Coopers and Lotuses, for privateer Rob Walker. The wins kept coming, including back-to-back giant-killing Monaco Grand Prix victories. In 1960, he finished almost one minute clear of the great Bruce McLaren. Then in 61, he brilliantly held off the more powerful Ferraris of Richie Ginther, Phil Hill and Wolfgang von Trips. After that race, he said he'd been driving at 10 tenths, within a hair's breadth of the limit for 92 of 100 laps. It was undoubtedly one of Moss's greatest ever wins. Moss finished third in the World Championship three times. Then in 1962, while at the peak of his powers, he suffered a life-changing crash. He was driving a Lotus at the famous Goodwood Circuit in England and was trying to pass Graham Hill when his car left the road at the fastest section of the circuit. 
Newspaper reports from the day say it took half an hour to free him from the wreckage. He was taken to hospital with serious injuries. Moss was in a coma for a month and partially paralysed for far longer. He did return to the cockpit after the crash, but felt he'd lost his edge, his instinct, his natural speed, and he retired from professional racing. Looking back decades later, it's one of the few things he seems to regret. I, I was very stupid. I, I went and t- t- tried my because of the press here, the pressure of the press. Are you going to race? When are you going to race? I made a decision, I think, a year too early. Mm-hmm. I think I should have waited another year. Uh, I might have got back to where I was. Okay. I missed the competition. But, but I mean, I can understand why it's not there because I mean, I'm just obviously now not physical, physically or mentally equipped to do what I used to do. And so I do miss that because it's, it's, because it's so rewarding. See, losing is no fun. You know, you've got to win. <laughs> you can't mess around with losers. And uh, the thought of me doing the, the things that I was doing now Completely, obviously, completely mm-hmm. impossible. Um, but but when it, when it is possible, running as close to the limit as possible is very exhilarating. One has the opportunity of beating other people mm-hmm. by competing against them and doing it with honesty and doing it with enjoyment. Mm-hmm. I mean, success is easy to enjoy. Mm-hmm. If, you've got, if you have success, that makes it a lot, lot more worthwhile. I'm, I'm, I miss competition, but you, but you can get competition in life, mm-hmm. you know. If you, if you do something great and you feel proud of it or happy about it or it paid off or what have you, all those things come in and, and make life you know, more, more acceptable. Okay. The thing is, the most important thing really is, is uh, we, we enjoy life. Yeah. And I think that's pretty important. Yeah. Literally everything I do, I do with Susie. And that, that gives me a great fe- feeling of satisfaction and pleasure. Sterling was married three times. And in 1980, he married Susie Payne, and they had a son together, Elliot. First thing we were, we were friends. I'm very lucky because I met her when she was four. It was quite, quite a long time. And, uh, so, so, and our lives, we do understand exactly what we do. I think we, we, we share a tremendous amount. I, I met her uh, when she was four or five, but then... Uh, then I, I dated her sister first because her sister is four years older than she is. She was born in Japan, but brought, brought up in the Far East. And uh, and so I used to stop off whenever I when I had to go racing in Australia, Australia or anywhere. I'd stop and see them. And then then she came over and, and moved over here. Her father retired, and uh, so that worked, worked very nicely. We have so many things that we share together, we enjoy together. And uh, and now, of course, we we, we travel, travel an awful lot doing things, and, and we have a fantastic life. Life is is to be shared. With, I think the, the friendship is a very 
important commodity. And I think if one has friendship, true friendship, it's a very, very important thing. And, and uh, uh, one's friends mean an awful lot to me. I don't know if you remember a time when you weren't well-known, because your fame came quite young. Yeah. So I'm not sure this is a fair question, but what impact do you think that fame has had on your life? Oh, I think a lot. And I mean, the fact that I can call up most places and get a table, you know, all this ordinary humdrum things like that and so on. Um, my name and, and being knighted mean an awful lot to me. I like to hope I deserved it. I'm very um, proud of being knighted. I'm glad I did have beat Jackie Stewart today. <laughs> <laughs> what advice would you have for people starting out who aren't sure which direction to go in? I would just say one thing, is go tread slowly. Tread, tread slowly. slowly, yeah, because if you rush into something, it's quite often not the best thing to, to, to do. Mm-hmm. And uh, so my advice really would be to anybody really would be, you know, look at it and evaluate it and then put your foot in and, 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 you know, and then achieve what, you, what you're seeking. like you're quite at peace in yourself. Yes, certainly more than I... Yes, I'm growing into it. I like to think we can get an awful lot out of, out of what, you know, what life is I have, has to offer still. Because Susie and I are, are a unit, you know, and, mm-hmm. and that is very important. Very important unit. And therefore I think that's, that's the thing that I'm happiest about. I feel very grateful to have the life that I've had. Mm-hmm. It'd be difficult to do a better one for me. <laughs> you know. Yeah. Some very powerful words to end on. But they're also happy ones because Sterling clearly loved his life and he lived a long and very fulfilled one. It's hard for me to pick a highlight from Mir's conversation, although Sterling's line about beating Jackie Stewart to a knighthood did make me smile. Competitive to the end. And his insights into life inside the 1950s Mercedes team, alongside Fangio, and those spine-chilling descriptions about the Millimiglia were fascinating. I first interviewed Sir Sterling all the way back in 1998. He was, of course, magic, but nothing like as thoughtful as he was here. A big thanks again to Mia Forbes-Peary for sharing the interview with us. It really was very special indeed. I think I speak for all F1 fans when I say he'll be in all of our minds when we eventually return to the thing he lived and breathed for, racing. Well, that's it for another week, but we'll be back in just seven sleeps with another Formula One guest. Before we go, a quick shout out to all of you who got in touch about last week's 70th anniversary episode with Martin Brundle. 
Martin is always excellent, but when he's talking about racing cars he's driven, he's especially priceless. Luca got in touch to say the latest F1 Beyond the Grid episode with Martin Brundle must be one of my all-time favourites. This absolutely fascinating talk and guide through the history of our beautiful sport kept me listening for the whole podcast and I was sad when it ended. Really nice. Well, thank you, Luca. Martin was indeed excellent. And like you, I could have listened to him all day. And here's another one. The latest episode was the best one yet, says Jeff Shubotham. There are some real bangers in the existing backlog, but nothing compares to hearing Martin Brundle's iconic voice talking about driving all the cars from the past and present. Absolute magic. Well, thanks for that, Jeff. Great stuff. Glad you enjoyed it. And the bangers in the back catalogue. Well, that's it for this show. Many thanks for listening. As ever, Beyond the Grid is produced by F1 in association with Audioboom. Until next time, keep it flat out.